Please pray with me. Father above, I pray that you would give us the ability to wait and hope for the fulfillment of your promises. Lord, I pray that you would strengthen us in our places where we struggle to trust. Amen. Sam looked at me during the gospel reading and said, poor widow. Poor widow indeed. On the surface, and by the way, this is stepping into stuff that just feels so utterly foreign, but I think it's actually worth our time. On the surface, this group of Sadducees engaged Jesus in a dispute about the resurrection. It may surprise you, maybe you've heard this before, but it may surprise you that the ruling class of Jerusalem, those who ran the temple, the place where the priests came from, that group of people didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. We know this from other sources outside the Bible. They were skeptical of this. They only viewed the Pentateuch, that is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, they only viewed those books as authoritative. And they didn't see the resurrection in those books. And so from their standpoint, if the resurrection's not in the Pentateuch, then the resurrection's not real doctrine. This was in opposition to the Pharisees who actually believed in the authority of all the books that we would consider a part of the Old Testament and found the resurrection in many other places and therefore believed in the resurrection. So these Sadducees come up to Jesus and they question him. They challenge him on a point of contention between them and the Pharisees. And they're basically gauging, is this teacher worth listening to? Does he agree with us? They question him on this dividing line between them and the Pharisees to see where he falls. And they present him with this conundrum. Moses commanded that if a man dies who has had no children, his widow should be married by the next brother in line. This is the point where we're like, what? What an odd system. It's called leveret marriage. Let me read it to you out of Deuteronomy 25. It'll only make it seem a little odder, I promise. Moses said, if brothers dwell together and one of them dies and has no son, the wife of the dead man shall not be married outside the family to a stranger. Her husband's brother shall go into her and take her as wife and perform the duty of a husband's brother to her. And the first son whom she bears, this is key, the first son whom she bears shall succeed to the name of the dead brother, that his name may not be blotted out of Israel. And if the man does not wish to take his brother's wife, then his brother's wife shall go up to the gate to the elders and say, my husband's brother refuses to perpetuate his brother's name in Israel. He will not perform the duty of a husband's brother to me. Then the elders of the city shall call him and speak to him. And if he persists saying, I do not wish to take her, then his brother's wife shall go up to him in the presence of the elders and pull the sandal off his foot and spit in his face. And she shall answer and say, so shall it be done to the man who does not build up his brother's house. And the name of his house shall be called in Israel, the house of him who had his sandal pulled off. If that's not odd, I don't know what would be. <laughs> By the way, this concept of leveret marriage, and all the lawyers in the congregation are going, wow, I wish I practiced law back then. This concept of leveret marriage 
is what lies behind the entire book of Ruth. You go reread Ruth with this concept in mind, and suddenly things begin to make sense, including this weird incident at the gate of the town where this man who should have redeemed Ruth and taken her as wife doesn't, has his sandal pulled off. Very strange. And it, it seems foreign to us. Indeed it is. It's odd. But it makes a great deal more sense in a society that was not kind to widows. It makes a great deal more sense in a society where a single women, woman without children was extremely vulnerable. That's one of the things that's lying behind it. And you see that in Ruth, that Boaz becomes her protector because she's incredibly vulnerable to assault, to people taking advantage of these sorts of things. But there's more than just protecting the woman going on here. There's also the fact that there's this deep sense that the name, the family line, that is, of this dead man shouldn't perish from Israel. It needs to be perpetuated. It needs to be perpetuated in the land. The name itself needs to survive. And something that's closely related to that is the idea that if that name were to die out, then the land that that person had inherited as their portion of God's promise then that land would end up in the hands of strangers. And that would mean that God's promise to that particular person and particular family had failed. And so ensuring that the name survives and the promise continues and that the woman is taken care of, you have this collapsing altogether where this practice where the woman is married by her dead husband's brother and the first child of that marriage gets named in the name of the dead man so that the line continues, the promise holds, the inheritance realized. It's a strange system, but it's one that would have made sense in their world. And the Sadducees come up to Jesus with this conundrum. In the case of Leverett marriage, if there is a resurrection, whose wife will she be? They think they fooled him. This is their trump card. They play it out to monumental proportions and they say, imagine if there were seven brothers. Let's make it ridiculous. Whose wife Will she be? But Jesus answers them and says, in effect, you're working with a faulty premise. There's no marriage in the resurrection. Your whole argument is built on sand. Marriage has a shelf life. It doesn't last to the other side of the resurrection. This is not the main point of this sermon, by the way, and it's not the main point of this passage, but it's one at least for like two minutes we need to grapple with. Because Jesus is actually teaching about marriage, and he's teaching that marriage has an end date, an expiration date. Marriage actually is a signpost. It points to something greater. It points to the union between Christ and the church. And once that union is fulfilled, the signpost actually is no longer needed. We need to grapple with this for a variety of reasons. It's like you get to your destination and you can set the map aside. You don't need the map anymore because you're now where you were supposed to be. We need to actually come to terms with that because there are two tendencies, and one is to distort and pollute marriage, and that's wrong because if this is a signpost, it needs to be kept pure and clean so that it points accurately to the relationship of Christ and the church. But the other tendency is to idolize it, to make marriage everything, and that's also wrong because it's just a signpost. It's not the final thing. The final thing is union with Christ. And in that union, all of us 
will have perfect union with one another. In other words, the best of marriages only point to the union that all believers will have with one another in the new kingdom. Marriage itself gets trumped by a set of relationships amongst the body of Christ, all of them making the best of earthly marriages pale in comparison. It's got a shelf life. In this realization that it's a signpost pointing forward that will be realized amongst all believers because of the union with Christ, in this, the New Testament is quite comfortable saying that marriage is very important, but it's not the most important thing. And therefore, we see Paul saying, I actually wish there were more single people, because single people can actually devote themselves to Christ and the church in a way that married people can't. I don't want to get bogged down here, but it's worth seeing that this is an implication of Jesus' answer to the Sadducees. But the reality is, the resurrection itself in this question about marriage is not the real thing on the table with the Sadducees right here. It's the presenting issue. It's the thing that Jesus is drawn into dispute with them about, but the thing that's underneath that question is much more significant to them. The real dispute is actually about the authority of the law of Moses. You see, in the Sadducees' view, the resurrection is incompatible with Mosaic law. And so then to teach the resurrection is to deny Moses. This is actually what they thought the Pharisees were doing. They were rejecting the authority of Moses by teaching resurrection because resurrection seems to be incompatible with Moses. And so they are coming up to challenge Jesus, not so much on the resurrection. That's the surface issue. They're coming to challenge him with the question of how do you handle the Mosaic law? Can we trust you with the Mosaic law? Do you view Mosaic law as authoritative? This, by the way, is why Jesus quotes the Mosaic law back at them. If you're curious, there's far easier places in the Old Testament that he could have gone to prove the resurrection. Look in your order of service at the passage from Job. Look at these last couple of verses in this passage from Job and say, how could you ever understand this except with resurrection? Verse 25, for I know that my Redeemer lives, and at the last he will stand upon the earth, and after my skin has been destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God. Resurrection ringing through that. Jesus could have gone there and said, look, resurrection in Job. Or listen to Daniel 12, 2. He says, in many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life and some to shame and everlasting contempt. Those who sleep shall awake. Resurrection clear is day in Daniel 12 too. But Jesus doesn't actually go to those verses because the Sadducees did not view them as authoritative. He goes to their own turf, the first five books of the Bible, because them, these books to them or the only authoritative spot. He goes to Moses himself. And even more significantly than just going anywhere in Moses, he goes to the burning bush. Because it's at the burning bush that God reveals himself to Moses. It's at the burning bush that Moses receives his call. It's at the burning bush that God says, Moses, you should be listened to. I appoint you in this role for Israel. And Jesus' point is at that crux, at that central point with Moses, God said, 
I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Jesus looks at the Sadducees and said, if you say that they're dead, then you're saying that God is the God of the dead. And if God is the God of the dead, then he is not the God of you, the living. And if God is the God of the dead, then he is not the God of life. And if God, you can see all the chains of logic that would fall out from this proof. His point, even in Moses, that only place you view as authoritative, the resurrection is clear. But even this, even this, the dispute about the Mosaic law and its authority, even this is not the deepest issue at play here. There's actually something underneath this, and it's the something underneath this that I actually am most excited to talk about with you all this morning. There's a deeper issue, and the deeper issue is a dispute about the promises of God, a dispute about the promises of God. You see, the, the Sadducees' view of the resurrection and of the Mosaic law seems to provide an answer to a really difficult question. The difficult question that they're dealing with is how can God's promises be true? How can God's promises be true if a person dies without receiving them? This is a hard question. How can you say that God kept his word if a person died before they even got what God promised? It's important for us to realize that they're actually wrestling with something difficult. I mean, after all, the book of Hebrews says of the patriarchs, these all died in faith without receiving the promises. Does this make God a liar? They're wrestling with something hard here. And it's significant for us to realize that what they're wrestling with is not this trifle. It's not just a theological dispute. It's actually sort of fundamental reality. Because we oftentimes also face this basic same sort of difficult question. The place where hopes and expectations don't get met. And we have to actually ask the question, did God keep his word to me? Is God still good? This is what lies behind the question itself. And we also actually find ourselves face to face with this at times. I thought, God, that if I followed you, you would do this for me. I thought you would take care of me. Lord, why, why, is, why is my marriage still difficult if I'm seeking to follow you? Why am I still struggling with this sin? Like, I thought that you would actually set me free of these things. We wrestle with these places where we have to ask ourselves, do we really believe that God is good? Then this is what they're wrestling with. If someone dies without receiving the promises, did God lie? That's what they're struggling with. And so when we struggle with the fact that, God, I've, I've tried to follow you, and yet I'm still lonely. I still struggle with anxiety. We're wrestling with the same thing that they were wrestling with, grappling with these difficult questions. They don't want to throw away their belief in the promises of God. And so what do they do? They redefine the promises in a way that makes sense to them. They redefine the promises in a way where they can go, look, he showed up. He was true. I don't have to lose my faith. I've just lowered the bar a fair bit. And so they say, as long as that man had sons, even if it was by his brother and his widow, in other words, he wasn't involved at all, as long as he had a son in his name who continues to live on the land, then the promise was fulfilled for the family. They lower the bar. They redefine the promises so that they can actually 
not be rocked by this idea that perhaps God didn't tell the truth. It's a movement of resignation where they lower their expectations of God to deal with the difficulties of this world. This movement of resignation is something that we're also deeply inclined to. We're deeply inclined to lowering our expectations of God. Perhaps we don't mean to, but we just sort of come to terms with the fact that maybe fulfillment is less than I hoped and dreamed it would be. And so we lower our expectations. We resign ourselves to perhaps a more modest sense. And we sort of push away the deep hurt and pain and longing of what we have not received. By the way, one of the important reasons why we should learn to pray the Psalms is that they never make this movement. The Psalms feel totally free to say to God, my expectations have not been met. When are you going to show up? I don't understand why this happened to me. The Psalms feel totally free speaking honestly and openly to God and saying, when will you stand by your promises? The one we just read, Psalm 17, is one of those psalms. At the tail end of it, you see the psalmist saying, look at the wicked. Their bellies are full and they have lots of children. What about me? What about me? But we make these movements of resignation because it can be very difficult to stare that unfulfillment in the face. It can be very difficult to live in that place where the promises don't seem to be coming true. We have whole theological systems based on this resignation. Theological systems that project everything out to the future. Theological systems that actually effectively say God doesn't do anything miraculous anymore. We have theological systems and impulses of the soul that are ways of coming to terms with the same question that the Sadducees were facing. What do I do when God doesn't seem to fulfill his promises? The Pharisees, by the way, had a totally different impulse. They couldn't have been more different. They had the impulse of God's promises will come true if we are faithful. This is why they wanted to drive the sinners out of the land. This is why they were so angry at Jesus for eating with prostitutes and tax collectors. Because in their mind, if we have enough faith and if we obey, God will fulfill his promises. And every person who doesn't fulfill the requirements of the law is a threat to God fulfilling his promises. In other words, their impulse was another impulse that we have an inclination towards. If I only worked harder, God would show up. If I only believed harder, God would show up. If I only had enough faith, he would fix this for me. If I only were better inside, more ethical, more moral, more pure, he would do this for me. He had, they had that inclination that so many of us feel that if we do enough, God will respond. It's a very different sort of impulse at play, but one that we understand. And they're both grappling with the same deep issue. Why hasn't God acted? We feel this. We feel it certainly personally. We feel it in places where we long for healing that has not yet occurred. 
You can't read the book of Acts without going, God, why don't you act like this anymore? There seem to be miracles all over the place. What's going on? What's wrong with me? Am I doing it wrong? Do I not have enough faith? And in confronting this difficult question, a question that really is about whether God keeps his word or not, whether God's faithful or not, in confronting this difficult question, the Sadducees had one impulse, lower expectations. The Pharisees had another, work and believe harder. Two impulses that we see ingrained in whole schools of theology right now. Two impulses that run through the heart of each one of us. This, by the way, is why I think this passage is worth listening to. I don't think any of us are going to try to institute lever at marriage in our society. That would be odd. And I honestly don't think most of us probably struggle with the doctrine of the resurrection. Maybe some do. But deeper underneath all of this is a question that all of us face. What do I do when God doesn't seem to show up? What do I do living in unfulfillment? Jesus' answer cuts through the mistakes of the Pharisees. It cuts through the mistakes of the Sadducees. It cuts through the theological system that says lower your expectation, project it all out to the future. It's okay to live with nothing now. And it cuts through the mistake that says if you only believed enough, God would show up. It cuts through from every angle. If you say, but wait a minute, Stephen, I don't even see where Jesus is talking about the promises here. I don't even see where he's talking about the promises. The key is in that quotation from Exodus. Because that quotation from Exodus was God's moment when he said to Moses, do you remember Abraham? Do you remember Isaac? Do you remember Jacob? And Moses would have gone, yes, I remember them. And what do you remember about those three people? What's the key with those three people? The key with them is God made each of them a promise. That's what God's reminding Moses of at the burning bush. I am the God who made the promise to Abraham. I am the God who made the promise to Isaac. I am the God who made the promise to Jacob. Jesus, in speaking to the Sadducees in this moment, by this quote, it's beautiful. He both undercuts their disbelief in the resurrection by proving that it must exist, even from the book of Moses, but he picks the particular place in Moses where he reveals their true heart-level problem. Do you believe the promises? Does God keep his word? Because this was the moment where God showed up to Moses and said, Moses, do you remember those promises? And you can imagine Moses going, yep, those 400-year-old promises that have not yet come to fruition. And by reminding of them, by God reminding Moses of those promises, he's saying to him, watch. Watch to see how they're fulfilled. And that's what the rest of the books of Exodus is. God's saying, watch how I fulfill my promises. Jesus is poking at the Sadducees' heart-level issue and saying, your real issue is whether God keeps his promises. And he fulfilled them in Exodus. We can fill in the blank then. So he will fulfill them for you. So then we say, but, but wait a minute. But, but how does he fulfill them? How does he fulfill them if, if in this moment things happen that I actually don't get? How does he fulfill them? And, and we're tempted to go, well, the resurrection answers everything, right? They'll all come true way off in the future. We sound like Martha when we say that, by the way. 
You remember that scene in John 11 after Lazarus has died? And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. They'll come true. They'll come true in heaven, right? You know what Jesus says to her? She says, it'll happen on the last day. And he says, no, 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 Martha, I am. Right now in the present, I am the resurrection and the life. Right now in the present, I am resurrection. Not just in the future, but right now in the present. That answer that he gave to Martha is so similar to what he said to the Sadducees. Look at verse 38. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. For all live to him. You hear that? All live to him. Who have we just been talking about? Abraham, Moses, Isaac, Jacob, all live to him. Not all will live to him or all did live to him, but right now, Moses is alive before him. Right now, Abraham is alive before him. Right now, in other words, it's not just last day. It's right now, too. This is the difficulty that we're called into, and this is the difficulty of his answer. It doesn't avoid the hard question of why aren't these things happening, and it doesn't lower the expectations, and it doesn't say work harder, and it doesn't say it'll just happen in the future. It says right now it's true, and you go, but right now I also feel like it's not true. This is this two planes of reality that the Christian is called into. Two planes of reality, one where we sense and feel and experience on a daily basis loneliness and grief and sin and death, where we experience that every single day. But another plane of reality that's deeper, more complete, permanent, another plane of reality where we are actually already alive in him, where everything's already been given to us. Ephesians, you've already been blessed with all the heavenly blessings. Right now, they're on your shoulders. Corinthians, you've already been given everything in Christ. Right now, it's already true. Colossians 3, you've already been raised up with Christ. The deeper, more permanent reality where all things are already true, even as we live in the midst of a world where we say, yet we still experience unfulfillment. We still experience death. We're still waiting for that final resurrection. That tension is what Jesus' answer calls us into, where he neither denies the pain of living in an unfulfilled world, but he neither acts like things haven't already occurred. His answer is that life has already been given. His answer is that the blessings have already come. So then you go, so then what do I do with this? What do I do with the fact that I experience loneliness, and yet the testimony is that I have never been alone because the Lord is with me at every moment? What do I do with the fact that I experience death because I lose family members, and yet the testimony is that they are alive in the presence of God? What do I do with the fact that I find myself to be weak, a failure, a disaster, a mess every single day, and yet the testimony is that I'm a conqueror in Jesus Christ? I possess and own all things. What do I do living in that tension? 
And Jesus says, live in the overlap of the ages. Live according to the promises. Live according to what's true. Live according to what he is going to bring to fulfillment, not according to what you experience. Live according to the reality of God, not according to the experiences of this world. That's a difficult place, right? It's a difficult place. But the beauty is that it's as we need. It's a, it's a, it's a life of faith, right? It's a, it's a life of walking in darkness, right? But as we need, that future breaks through into the present. God doesn't abandon his children and say, just walk in the darkness forever. Sometimes he does to stretch our muscles of faith to see how far can we go. But there's moments when he says, this one needs my encouragement now. And he breaks through in the present and brings the future into the present, as it were, giving us exactly what we need to take another step of faith. The point, we can live in expectation even as we wait. We can live in confidence even as we wait. We can live in hope even as we wait. And like the psalmist, don't hesitate to cry out with genuine pain, Lord, when will you show up in this place? Amen.